This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. This is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later this hour, Randy Wilburn from the podcast I Am Northwest Arkansas talks with two members of the Experience Fayetteville team. That's in our second half hour. First, understanding maternal mortality. Arkansas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the nation, with 40 deaths per 100,000 live births between 2018 and 2020, according to an analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation. In our series focusing on maternal mortality, Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Dr. Joe Thompson, the CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, about Arkansas's rate. And in her second report, she's examining what those deaths encompass for mothers as they are giving birth. As we talked about last time, you know, mother's health, the support when she gets pregnant in the early parts of her pregnancy are very, very important. But as we get toward delivery, you know, pregnancy, labor, delivery of the newborn is a normal part of life, a healthy, normal outcome that has been going on for centuries. Unfortunately, we do have moms entering into that time and space that bring with them risk factors that I think we're not adequately recognizing, whether those are cardiovascular issues that are unrecognized, which is probably the number one cause of maternal mortality that we see, whether it's obesity or other risk factors that may make the labor and delivery a higher risk. Uh, These are things that I think we assume are not going to be a problem until they become a problem, and then it becomes a, a, a really emergent issue that we have to address quickly if we recognize it. Too frequently, we may not recognize it until it's too late in the new mom's um, uh, threat. I think some of the risks we do share with our sister states, you know, high rates of obesity, high rates of chronic conditions. Again, many of those that may not be fully recognized for their negative impact or their risk conveyed as the mom delivers. But there are other things that are measurable that we do see. We have a high level of C-section rates in our state. We have about 34% of all deliveries now happen by C-section, and that's much higher than it was just a decade or so ago. So we're having higher risk deliveries that may also be contributing to some of the threats that our new moms are facing. When we break down those deaths that are happening as mothers are going to deliver, many of the risk factors that make a mother more susceptible to these dangerous outcomes are details that practitioners should know before going to labor. I think you're getting at something that's critically important, which is for our healthcare providers to assess the risk of each and every mother. We are having mothers wait longer or become pregnant later in life. So being an older mom, uh, you're more likely to have chronic conditions. You're more likely to uh, you know, have stresses that as you become, pre- when you become pregnant, as you gestate along during your pregnancy, put more stress on your body. So monitoring for things, I think, becomes more important for older moms but also moms that have previously had risk factors like obesity or preeclampsia with a prior labor and delivery. These are things that really should heighten the surveillance to see if this pregnancy is also gonna have 
uh, risk factors that could lead to bad outcomes. Another question I had for Dr. Thompson was whether or not we were seeing the full picture of mother's deaths in Arkansas and what the numbers can and cannot tell us. We know that in the United States, we have a higher mortality rate for moms than most other developed countries. Arkansas is higher than the United States. And for our pregnant moms of color, it's higher than it is for the Caucasian population. I think the deaths of moms we are recognizing because it's such a, a, a dramatic event. What I think we're not recognizing are the near misses that we're having in moms. So that you know the death is an unfortunate, tragic event, but the near miss we're not recognizing. Looking at the available data for maternal mortality, what we don't see in that group is the amount of times a mother nearly dies from childbirth. The close calls aren't counted, but that doesn't mean they aren't important. So if a mom is having high blood pressure, if she's having protein in her urine later in her gestation, that predicts that she is at a much higher risk than a mom who's not having those risk factors. And not only should be monitored before she delivers the baby, but also probably be fairly closely monitored after she delivers the baby to make sure that those abnormalities, you know, uh, go away and that she returns to kind of a normal state of health and that we don't lose line of sight on risk factors that are present but maybe under-recognized. There's no question that the hard statistics, the deaths of moms and where we are, clearly indicate a problem. But I think the problem is not the deaths in and of itself, although they are tragic, it's the risk and the unrecognized threats to moms that lead to those deaths. So the mom needs to be able to trust the healthcare provider that she's interacting with. The healthcare provider needs to listen to the mom if she feels like something's not right. And they need to explore, you know, in that partnership, uh, the dyad partnership between provider and mom, hopefully inclusive of spouse and other family members uh, to get the best healthy outcome for the delivery and to start that new family off on the right path. Now that we have a better picture of the landscape of maternal mortality, I asked Dr. Thompson about recommendations made by healthcare advocacy organizations like ACHI to lower the number, not just of deaths, but of near misses as well, leading to Thompson's three-pronged approach to saving the lives of our mothers, communication, education, and monitoring. I think there several recommendations, but I think they can be kind of boiled down into three things. One is communication. Let's make sure we have good communication between the provider and the expectant mother and, and her caregivers. Let's make sure that we have good education so that the mom knows what to expect, knows what signs to watch for, and that we have good monitoring so that if mom has a history of a chronic condition, if she has symptoms that need to be followed up, if she has you know, an obesity or a history of a problem pregnancy in the past, that we flag her as a high-risk pregnancy and we make investments in addition to just the normal labor and delivery efforts that we have underway. And finally, I think all those things, communication, education, monitoring, need to continue after the baby is delivered to make sure the mom gets through her delivery process and back to a healthy, you know, independent state as a new mom of a healthy young infant in our state. In addition to this approach, recognizing that this issue is worsened for women of color, women who don't speak English, poor and uninsured women. Rachel, I, I, if I can add to, you know, I think 
I think we need to recognize that, you know, we have trust issues, particularly with women of color and our healthcare system. Most providers in the state of Arkansas don't look like women of color that are delivering in our hospitals. And so there is a, there's a power differential, there's an educational differential, there's frequently a, a, a language differential or at least a communication differential. And we need to work so that those differentials don't contribute to you know, the potential for poor outcomes in the labor and delivery process. Hand in hand with the maternal mortality number is that of the infant mortality in the U.S. The crisis about maternal mortality also comes in conjunction with maternal health and infant mortality. In a panel about these discussions, Amber Nicole Booth-McCoy, UAMS Manager of Intercultural Education, used the analogy that if a jet carrying 400 people crashed once per week in the U.S., the country would shut down air travel and call for a national investigation just after a couple of crashes. But that's how many babies die in this country every year, Frazier said, referring to the about 400 infant deaths per week. When you think about the fact that about two and a half times as many black babies die as white babies, it puts it into perspective, she said, leading to Thompson's other point about maternal mortality being a systemic issue. We have seen maternal mortality rates rising over the past decade or two. Unfortunately, you know, we have seen some other risk factors increase in our moms, chronic conditions, obesity, older deliveries. So it's hard to tease those completely apart, but we do see that we are having much higher rates than other developed countries and that, than other states in the United States. So clearly there's a systemic issue here that could be solved if we pay attention to what is going on. So that's what I think there's a call for is to recognize that the differences that we see point to things that we can change. We need to identify what those changes are and work hard to put them into place. COVID was a, a clear wake-up signal. Uh, we saw, you know, as COVID hit, um, communities of color have problems getting testing, problems getting treatments, uh, even potentially problems getting in the hospital when they needed to be hospitalized. So we clearly have some systemic racial issues that place some groups at higher risk than others. I think the, um, the decision around Roe versus Wade will have many more pregnancies occur that get carried to term. And I think the support system that's in place for those needs to be strengthened so that we have communication, we have education, we have outreach and engagement with those new pregnant moms as early as possible so that we can have the best outcomes uh, achievable. That was Dr. Joe Thompson, CEO of ACHI. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. This is the second part of our maternal mortality series in partnership with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, looking at the severity of the maternal health crisis in the natural state. Still to come on today's show, Sarah Neidhart's book, 20 Acres, is a memoir about moving to the Ozarks with her parents as part of the Back to Land movement. It's the story of both an American era, an important time when the counterculture was making a fairly large impact on at least certain segments of society. It's about life in a marginalized area in Arkansas. 
It's about family life. It's about childhood. Sarah Neidhart will talk with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore about her book in advance of her reading at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville on Sunday. That conversation ahead on today's program. The third annual Her Set, Her Sound Festival is back June 9th and 10th at West and Watson and Prairie Street Live in Fayetteville. Her Set, Her Sound takes up space to celebrate identity and empower women and non-binary DJs in our region. Guests can enjoy food trucks, vendors, and entrepreneurs, plus groovy vibes and activations to amplify her on and off the stage. Tickets and sponsorship information available at hersethersound.com. The third annual Ozark Beer Company Cardboard Regatta is June 11th at Lake Atlanta in Rogers. Teams and onlookers are invited to participate in the over-the-top spectacle. Prizes will be awarded. Proceeds benefit the Rogers Public Educational Foundation. ozarkbeercompany.com slash regatta for registration, rules, and more. This is... Ozarks at Large. Seven of Walton Arts Center's board of directors left their positions after the center's leadership decided to no longer host youth events featuring drag performers on Pride Weekend. This group included members of the center's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging Committee. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope has this report. Now former members like Casey Hamaker, who was the board of directors, secretary, treasurer, cite values as the main reason for stepping down from their positions. I consider myself an ally, and I think whenever you say that, there are certain responsibilities that come with that, meaning you can't pick and choose which part of the LGBTQIA community that you are allying with. The Walton Arts Center is one of 236 organizations that signed the Northwest Arkansas Council's Pledge for Diversity and Inclusion. The center's decision to not allow drag performances where minors are present comes after an act restricting adult-oriented performances was signed into law in February. The new law was not mentioned in the center's explanation of the decision in a statement released this past Friday. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One, I'm Anna Pope. Walton Arts Center officials say they made the decision because of safety concerns for performers, staff, and patrons amid divisive and dangerous rhetoric. Arkansas's latest unemployment rate is a new all-time low. The United States Bureau of Labor Statistics reports close to a 10% decline in the number of Arkansans who were unemployed in the April report. The state's April jobless rate was 2.8%. That's lower than the 3.1% recorded in April 2022. According to the numbers, just fewer than 39,000 Arkansans eligible to work were without jobs last month. A Fayetteville-based baking academy for the neurodivergent community will close early next month. Rock and Baker Academy announced yesterday that current economic realities and fundraising challenges led to the upcoming closure on Saturday, June 3rd. There will be a 1 o'clock ceremony on that day to celebrate the Academy's six years and more than 50 trainee graduates. Tributes continue for the late Arkansas Congressman Marion Barry, who died this weekend. The Democrat served Arkansas's first district from 1997 to 2011. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has ordered flags to be flown at half-staff until his internment. Governor Sanders says Arkansans admired his loyalty to the state. Former Governor Mike Beebe says Marion Barry was a natural advocate for agricultural issues and for the health of his rural constituents. 
New research at the University of Arkansas examines origins of aggression among children and teens with autism spectrum disorder. Lauren Quetch, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Arkansas and a state licensed clinical psychologist, led a team that surveyed hundreds of caregivers, including parents and guardians enrolled in SPARC, a nationwide secure online community of autistic individuals and their families willing to participate in research studies. The team also surveyed neurotypical kids on different types of aggressive behaviors over three critical developmental periods. Quetch says caregivers of autistic youth reported more frequent aggression at greater intensities than non-autistic youth, citing possible causes. From the research that we've we've conducted, we've seen things such as uh, gastrointestinal issues, think of like stomach problems, right, Um, that are pretty common. Uh, oftentimes there's issues with sleep. So there's there's sleep issues, especially in, um, in young kids, but it continues on through adulthood often. And then you have other factors of, are people misunderstanding me? So I think one of the, the things within our society is we have a lot of social rules and they're often unspoken. We just expect people to know how to, how to act and interact with each other. And so you have these rules about um, telling white lies to make someone feel nice, right? Or um, not being straightforward or sometimes what would be considered rude. She says people with autism spectrum disorders can be blunt, which tends to be perceived as rude, or they can engage in disruptive behavior. Which are things that I would consider are um, can be inconvenient or annoying for for caregivers, right? Like takes too long to get ready or get dressed, um, doesn't go to bed right when I tell them to, um, argues with siblings, right? So those are things that we consider disruptive behaviors. Another one that we looked at was um, verbal aggression. And um, those are things like saying, I hate you, um, I uh, talking about someone in an unnice way, right? And so we see, again, that similar pattern of uh, similar highs and lows to the non-autistic sample, but caregivers are rating them more frequently as as having um, higher issues. She says children with autism may have difficulty recognizing emotions in others and expressing emotions. Some may be nonverbal or suffer with sensory overstimulation, which can cause them to lash out. Hitting, kicking, biting, scratching, because these kids are frustrated and tantrums for these young kids are, are normal. And at the same time, I, I'm, I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to express myself, and I'm feeling very overwhelmed, and I have a lot of um, – I'm acting out physically. But those rates are super high for when kids are less than six and then decrease and actually go to um, levels of non-autistic peers. The report is published in the April edition of Autism Research. Arkansas Razorback baseball head coach Dave Van Horn is the 2023 SEC Coach of the Year. It's the third time he's been honored with the award in his 21 years at the university. The Razorbacks shared the regular season conference championship with Florida and open play in the SEC tournament tomorrow. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. 
Sarah Neidhart's childhood sounds like something from a Laura Ingalls Wilder book. Her parents moved to the Ozarks in the 1970s as part of the Back to Land movement. The bohemian counterculture meets pioneer homemaking story sounds romantic, but Sarah's memoir, 20 Acres, paints a sober and compassionate telling of her unconventional life. Sarah spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore earlier this month, and she says the book is about a lot of things. It's the story of both an American era, an important time when the counterculture was making a fairly large impact on at least certain segments of society. It's about life in a marginalized area in Arkansas. It's about family life. It's about childhood. It's about memory. It's also to some extent about culture clash, although there wasn't an intense amount of that, but it was definitely about living in a a new society, a new culture sort of strangers in a strange land I've, is on the as we say on the back of the book if if you don't mind i've i've got the book in front of me here and as i was reading through it you know we we start the book with kind of this admission from you talking about class and your place and especially your family's you know place in culture right so there's a there's a sentence that you say here as you're talking about growing up in Stone County, kind of on you know the middle of nowhere, uh, you say, it would take me years to understand that the life that most defined me as once poor was in reality the very thing that most connected me to my upper-class ancestry, the ability to choose to check out. That line really kind of stuck with me there. Can you talk about kind of the, the power of that in your story and in your life? Well, I mean, I think it's been hugely powerful. A class has been sort of this narrative throughout my whole life, something that I'm relatively obsessed about. And it was because I had this strange dichotomy of as a child of both my parents came from upper middle class backgrounds, sort of Mayflower, Jamestown kind of families, you know, that sort of background. And yet I spent my childhood, those eight years we spent in the woods, and then years after that, another six years we spent in Arkansas and then moving to California where we were, my parent, we lived paycheck to paycheck. My parents were barely middle-class often. So that was my day-to-day life. That's who my peer group often growing up were other people who were either poor or working class. So that was part of my identity, but yet I had this other part that was upper class that I did see a fair amount of. And of course it's what essentially enabled my parents to come to the woods. They didn't come with a big cash cow, but they came with that sort of hubris that comes of your family having made it already. You you don't have to follow some prescribed route for your life. Yeah, there's almost, as I'm reading into this book, there's almost this, we can take this risk because there's a backup plan if we need it. Right, right. And I think some of that, even if there isn't like, in some ways, both my parents' families didn't really have a lot of money anymore. So it wasn't like there was some amazing backup plan, but there's still this just sense that things are going to be all right for us because things are just all right. You know, it's just sort of ingrained. It's generational confidence, I would say, much that comes with things like generational wealth. Even when the wealth itself has petered out, that generational confidence still exists. And I think that fuels these sorts of endeavors. A lot of your book is is kind of looking back through the written history that that they wrote themselves, right? Of, yeah. of, of kind of telling their own story, but perhaps in a in a very visceral of the moment way, and not necessarily in a way that was meant to be 
a historical landmark necessarily, right? Right. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about historical writing, we think about like, it was very intentional that I'm writing this because I want people to remember this, as opposed to, to what you experienced, where you're looking at vignettes of their life or their moments and, and kind of using that to better understand their story. Right. The letters really, I mean, without the letters, I don't think I could have done this story. And it was being able to get that very contemporary voice that they had. Like, I really have, I feel like I have their voice there. And because they are just letters they were writing casually, they weren't formal letters. And I felt like I was able to really pick up parts of their personalities that maybe I hadn't been fully aware of before. And I don't know how fair that is to be have your personality be captured in a letter, but I think it is. And I think particularly at that time, they were writing, you know, writing was the main form of communication if you were in separate places. And so people really did talk in them in some ways the way they would have talked to each other in person or on the phone and so it was that was wonderful I really it was it was a real insight for me and to my parents let's talk about the move to Arkansas your family was living in Colorado at the time ran into a man who happened to be from Fox Arkansas and said hey I like it out here maybe you will too and they said okay (laughs) was it really that I mean was it was the decision really that flippant I mean, pretty much. I mean, it happened that fast. It was a friend of a friend who was not originally from Fox, Arkansas, but had gone down there following some other hippies. And he was in Colorado visiting his friend, who was also friends with my father. And he was going on and on about how wonderful it was down there, the music, the beauty, there was caves, you know, so much to do. And then he left his keys in his car in Fox fashion and it got stolen or his truck got stolen. He didn't have a way to get back to Fox. And my dad and a friend said, we'll drive you back. We want to go check it out. So it was that casual, you know, like, you know, they were 20, I think my dad was maybe 28 at that point and very impetuous and it sounded fun. So my mom and I came too, and we drove to Fox, Arkansas, just to check it out and bought land (laughs) that, that visit, we bought the land. Looking back on it now with the hindsight, what did what were your thoughts being there? I mean, I it was where I came of age. It, you know, it, I was a baby. I was I turned one almost exactly when we arrived in Mountain View down the hill from Fox. Um, so I it was my home that all, all I knew until I we left when I was in third grade. But I at the time had I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful childhood. But it also was a very poor part of my life that I carried shame about, partly, I think, because of visits to visit family in Colorado. And so I could see that juxtaposition between our two lives. And so I was very aware of our poverty, even compared to some of the other people that I went to school with in that community who lived in, you know, real brick houses or trailers. I thought a lot of the trailers were pretty cool. If they were like a new enough trailer, that seemed fancy to me. So that feeling of poverty definitely flavored my feelings about it at the time so yeah it's been it's I've had mixed feelings about it growing up I grew up in a town of 300 people in southeastern Illinois and went to a consolidated public county school I mean like as I look back on where I grew up now there there is this romantic idea of you know it's it's kind of nice like being able to just like walk out on your back porch and not see anybody, not have traffic, not have to deal with that. But at the same time, we were 
a very long way away from a hospital. Right, exactly. We were a very long way away from a grocery store. So, you know, was there a point where it just became untenable for everyone? And how long did that take, do you think? Well, we it took eight years. And I, what's interesting is my parents no longer really truly remember why they decided in that moment it was time to go. And my mother, interestingly enough, had sort of started to adapt by that point. Um, she found a way to go back to school so she could get a teaching cert- certificate certificate in Arkansas. So she was commuting to Conway to go to school and it was starting to feel tenable, but it was more for my father. He'd reached a point career wise that he just couldn't move forward. That's about all he can really remember. And so we kind of left as impetuously as we came. You're a mother now. You have a child. As you look back at with a very deep look at how your parents were when they were perhaps your age or, you know, had children of that age. How has that shaped the way that you're a parent? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that I still, you know, when my son was young, I had all that natural foods going in my head. You know, I'd kind of lost a lot of it. You know, I love junk food, all those things that I discovered after we left. But I wanted to nurse. I wanted to have natural foods, organic. I still buy organic predominantly. I had cloth diapers. I had a service that picked it up at the door. But I had, and those things I kind of did almost without any kind of, there was no activism behind them. It was just came naturally to me to make those sorts of choices. And I think it was because of that childhood. And, you know, when you become a parent, you're often are influenced by how your parents parented. And so I think that definitely affected me. When I was writing the book, I did I had had sort of not romantic feelings about the woods often, romantic and not romantic. But when I was writing the book and raising a young child, I did suddenly become very romantic about the woods and think how, oh, it'd be so wonderful. You know, like, oh, yeah, this is how did my mother do this? This is ridiculous. But on the other hand, oh, sounds so wonderful. I could just let him outside. And, you know, it definitely was an interesting time to be writing the book while I was raising a young child. By the time this publishes, I very well may be a first-time father. And I have spent so much of, honestly, probably the last 35 weeks thinking about the way my parents were parents and thinking about the things that they did that I don't want to do. Right. But I also spend a lot of time thinking about the way that I want to do things the way that they did do things. Do you have those sort of sentiments, too, as you as you think about your folks? Absolutely. I felt, I knew the freedom that my parents gave us was so special. And part of that was just that life and living in the woods and having the ability to let your kids kind of run wild. And part of it was their personalities. And that was really wonderful. I I truly appreciate how much thought my mother put into the food we ate. I appreciate how much they loved music and surrounded us with music. But I also realize I don't want to be quite as laissez-faire as my parents. Like, I think they got a little too laissez-faire as years went on. And I want to, you know, so I think there's a fine balance of capturing these things. You'll be at Pearl's Books in Fayetteville on May 28th at 4.30, doing a book signing there. You know, what's it going to be like being back in Arkansas? You know, I don't know. I am incredibly excited and I'm incredibly nervous because I do feel like an outsider in Arkansas now. But it feels like home, too. So I'm particularly nervous to drive into Mountain View. And then we're going to drive up to Fox. The old cabin is still there. I actually found it on Zillow 
this past August, the land had sold and they had built a big house next to it, but they kept the cabin. So I've found the owner and he's going to let us come onto the property. And, you know, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I It's going to burst that mythical bubble that I have. <laughs> Well, sure, because you have this 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 mental image stuck in your head yeah. from you know the age of what eight, yeah, so, exactly nine, yeah. Have you been? Have you? I mean, like, have you seen it at all since then? I have not seen the Stone County or the property since 1981. Yeah, and I haven't been to Arkansas. I did actually. We left Arkansas in 1986 when I was 14, and I've only been back one time for about three days. I came on a work trip to Fayetteville for. A, I was working for an architect who did student housing design and we flew into Fayetteville for like five seconds and that's so I really haven't been to Arkansas since 1986 so it's gonna it's big <laughs> I hope that your time there is is meaningful I, I don't know if it will be good bad or otherwise but I, I certainly hope it'll be meaningful it will be I'm sure it will be Sarah thank you so much for this book thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it thank you thank you for having me Sarah Neidhart spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore about her memoir 20 Acres published by the University of Arkansas Press. She'll be at Pearl's Books in downtown Fayetteville Sunday afternoon at 4.30, signing copies of her book. She's also going to be at the Arkansas Craft School in Mountain View on Saturday. That is from 10 until noon. But the Pearl signing, that's Sunday afternoon at 4.30. If you have a business or organization within KUAF's listening area and want to support public radio, while connecting our thousands of engaged listeners with your services, consider becoming a KUAF business member today. Starting at just $500, you'll be linked on our business members directory and mentioned during our spring and fall on-air fund drives. Sign up today at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. If you've been listening to Randy Wilburn's podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas, you know he tries to cover as much of the region one week at a time as he can. The latest episode centers on Fayetteville, specifically Experience Fayetteville, and the work it does to promote the city and bring events to residents and tourists alike. Randy talked with Sarah King, the Vice President of Marketing and Communication at Experience Fayetteville, and Chloe Bell, the Community Engagement Coordinator for Experience Fayetteville. Randy asked Sarah King how she describes the work of Experience Fayetteville. In a nutshell, Experience Fayetteville is an economic development organization focused on the tourism sector. So okay. that's us in a nutshell. We are officially the Fayetteville Advertising and Promotion Commission. So those are established under state statute. And our mission is to promote the city of Fayetteville to, to tourists. So we have a, a lot of different programs because no tourist, <laughs> I mean, is the same. So we have a lot of different programs. Most recently... And here's one where it's really obvious how this crosses. You say, well, you're talking to tourists, but, you know, we also are providing a lot of value to locals as well. Sure. This year, we launched Fayetteville Restaurant Week. Oh, um, yeah. 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 You heard about I, it? Of course. And But, you know, the, I will sadly say that I had to experience it vicariously through my friend, the Hangry Peddler. Oh, he, yeah. He, he posted about it every day that he went out to a different place in Fayetteville to eat. And there were a lot of really good options. I, For some reason that week, I was just kind of flat out and I just didn't have the time to get out. But yes, that is a great example of of ways that people can really kind of get out and get to know Fayetteville in a different way. Sure. It was a pilot for us this year. It was a program that was really lean for us. But I think it demonstrates the kind of value that Experience Fayetteville brings 
because of those 57 restaurants that took place, we surveyed them and everyone said, this program brought us new customers. Like, what a great value that is. And someone new coming through your door, you know, is going to come back again. We got a lot of great feedback from our restaurants. One of the restaurants said it was like having another Friday in the week, (laughs) which is just tremendous um, in terms of your bottom line and knowing that February is typically not a great, you know, a great month for restaurants at the register. So we feel like we brought a, a lot of value there. And I think it's exactly the role that that experience Fayetteville can play because, you know, it was a few hundred dollars per restaurant in what we spend in advertising in the billboards that you saw, yeah. lots of appearances, ads that ran on social media, ads that were in newspapers, ads, lots of radio. So when you encountered those ads, and that guided you to experience Fayetteville, no single one of those restaurants could have had nearly the amount of impact if they each would have spent, you know, a couple hundred bucks. But together in promoting our restaurants, I think we made a really big impact for each of them. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of splash splash of media and, and uh, marketing that really makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not a heavy, heavy lift, but it does make a difference. So. Yes. And so we have Things that people traditionally associate with a visitor center, we operate Experience Fayetteville Welcome Center on the square. So our visitor center, you can come there and gather any number, hundreds probably, of brochures about things that you can see in the community. And even better, you can meet our staff there who can give you just personalized recommendations for things that you can see in town. So the things that you traditionally think about visitor centers, those are certainly services that we offer. Programs like Fayetteville Restaurant Week, like the Fayetteville Ale Trail, which is celebrating its mm. 10th year this year, Wow! which is a resource we, we print. And I brought your own passport so you can take that challenge. It's a passport that has now 20 breweries. And when you talk about regional, regional cooperation, there are breweries not just in Fayetteville, but throughout the region. And we provide a prize. You can go get a stamp at any one of these breweries. We have a Fayetteville 7 challenge now. So if you go and visit <laughs> the seven Fayetteville breweries, you get a cool, it's a cool Fayetteville L Trail koozie with a strap. It's very, it's fancy as koozies go. Yeah. Pretty awesome. And then if you get all 20, we're unveiling later this year a cool Stein that Ooh. you get as someone who's completed the Ale Trail. So those are a couple, a couple programs that we have so many things that we do. And then Chloe's work is, is tremendously important, too, because we create experiences through festivals. One of the longest running is every December, every November through January, Lights, Lights of the Ozarks right, right. and the Lights of the Ozarks Parade. And that's something that, that Chloe spends a lot of time. I think people would be astounded by the amount of effort that goes on behind the scenes with every single detail that goes into those half a million twinkling lights. And then all the plans for, you know, that. I don't know if, you know, Lights of the Ozarks was my, my first week working here was, okay, Sarah, you know, <laughs> it's your first you week go. and we're going to have this major event, lots of media, tons of people. And getting to observe that is, is mind blowing and knowing the kind of, the kinds of plans that Chloe makes behind the scenes to make sure that not only is it welcoming, is it, you know, well organized, but all those little safety things, you know, they've thought of everything. What if a kid gets separated from oh, a family? Yeah. Chloe has thought of it and there's a plan in place to make sure that all those things go without a hitch. And how many people come to that event? Ooh, it definitely varies since, you know, throughout the pandemic, there's been a lot of ups and downs. But parade night, I've seen a peak of around 5,000. That's a lot of people. Especially for a night parade, that kind of increases the, the need for those safety precautions. 
but yeah, then any given night of Lights of the Ozarks, it's it's pretty hard to track that because it's packed. Like yeah. all the peak nights, you can barely kind of move on the sidewalks now because it's become so so popular nationally. And we're actually, uh, it's going to be our 30th anniversary this year. Uh, In 2023. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a great cool. year. We're planning on year. how we can mark that special occasion because- do you already have the plans in the works? I'm I'm assuming. Ooh, they're in the <laughs> works, but lots of lots of stakeholders with lights of the Ozarks. It's a really important legacy for our city. So any change, any evolution, I think it's really important to get everybody on board. Yeah, get everyone on board. And yeah, the the history of it's just so interesting. It started very differently along like the 71B corridor, and mm-hmm. each business would like light up, followed by a fire truck. Now, logistically, that sounds very difficult. And so I'm not doing that, but it started as a really grassroots effort to bring in more tourism revenue during sure. some slow months. And so it's it's nice to look back on that 30 years that, you know, I wasn't totally alive for, but it's <laughs> nice to look back on those 30 years and, and kind of feel like we're still honoring that legacy and doing a good job of it. Right. But you're the next generation to take it to a whole nother level, though, right? So even though you just put yourself out there by saying you're not that old, but you are, it's going to be, the legacy is going to be left to you to take it to a whole different place. I'm definitely no trying no to. <laughs> I mean, the biggest thing to account for is Fable's growth yeah. and, and yeah. the added attention to to the lights. So I'm very excited. Long term, I would love to see it spread to the cultural arts corridor, but that's just my my vision right now. Sure. My soul vision. <laughs> I speak for no one else. Okay, Chloe's Col- Col- got Santa Claus on speed dial. Oh, so, you, you know, so she the sky's the limit with her. Sarah King is the Vice President of Marketing and Communication at Experience Fayetteville. Chloe Bell, the Community Engagement Coordinator for Experience Fayetteville. They talked with Randy Wilburn for the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas. That episode can be found at IamNorthwestArkansas.com. You can also follow I Am Northwest Arkansas on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast at any major podcast distributor. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Details on hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org. Historic Cane Hill presents Nylok and Beyond 20th Century Swirl Art Pottery, now through July 8th. This exhibition features the swirled mission wear and pieces inspired by the Arkansas-made Nylok pottery. The historic Cane Hill Gallery is open Thursday through Saturday, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. and by appointment. More at historiccanehillar.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks, the Fort Smith Symphony will celebrate its 100th anniversary later this year. So uh, we decided, well, what would be a great season? What would be celebratory? You know, what's what can we do that kind of represents where we are and where we're headed? A century of the Fort Smith Symphony and the observations planned. We'll talk with John Jetter, the musical director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony, on tomorrow's show at noon and 7 p.m. and on our Ozarks at Large podcast, available for free everywhere. A longtime NPR editor once said that a news story should help you think new thoughts, which is what Morning Edition stories do. When I started, I had no example. I did not ha- see uh, an Arabic artist in America singing in Arabic. That was never there. So it's taking a risk. Wake up to broader horizons. Catch Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Morning Edition tomorrow and every weekday morning from 5 until 9 on 91.3 KUAF.
on the next episode of The Beloved Community. Host Chris Seawood sits down with Dr. Ricky Booker, DEI thought leader and opinion columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, to discuss the diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape, its necessity, history, and ongoing placement in the sphere of race relations in Arkansas and beyond. But DEI positions uh, came out of the civil rights movement. Um, it started as diversity, just getting people who looked differently, specifically black folks, specifically brown folks, specifically women into the workforce. Now it is diversity, equity, inclusion, access, belonging, and so many other things because mm -hmm. it's really leaning into um, systems of oppression. Episode two of The Beloved Community. Listen for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. NWA Fashion Week is coming back soon as part of Interform's arts umbrella called Assembly. We wanted a preview of both Fashion Week and Assembly, and that gave us another great opportunity to ask one of our favorite guests, Roe Bailey, to come back to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Roe is the communications manager with Interform, and she says the combination of arts and community will be all over the place next month. Assembly is coming up. The kickoff is June 1st, but you know, um, Northwest Arkansas Fashion Week is under the umbrella of Assembly. Now, Assembly is a biennial, which means it's every other year, and it's America's first art and fashion biennial. So it's kind of a kind of a big deal, a little bit. So there's going to be over 60 different artists and exhibitions all throughout Springdale and Bentonville. And we really get to show the community back to itself. People are artists, people are designers. And so you kind of get to see what Northwest Arkansas is really about, like the talent and the skill. It's pretty awesome. How do we see it? I mean, it manifests yeah. in many different ways. Yes. So you can go to our website, interform.art, and there'll be a full schedule of all the venues and exhibitions um, that you can check everything out. And you can also check us out on social media as well at interform.art on Instagram. We post all of the curators and all of the artists. So you'll be able to go there and kind of see what's going on. And we've got the, uh, the art crawl coming up. It's like a... You'll get to go to each art exhibition and get a little get a little taste of some some uh, adult beverages. So <laughs> twenty one and over now. Yeah, of course, Kyle. Of course. I, I don't know if you you gonna make it. Oh. <laughs> and then some, and then some. But I appreciate that. Uh, I know you can't list every venue. And you don't want to leave someone out, but just give us an idea of the kinds of venues that yes. are included. Yes. So the Quonset Hut, which is um, at the Momentary, and we've also got some venues in Springdale on Emma, so we've got 117 that's going to have some art exhibitions as well, um, Paradin Studios, just to name a few, and um, the Pub Crawl is going to be in Springdale, so you'll get to go to all the different venues and get a little, a little taste of of something from the urban, I think it's urban wine celery. I don't know if I've said it, said it correctly, but they're going to be sponsoring it. So we really appreciate them. I'm excited about that. What kind of artists and art will we experience? Well, you'll experience, there's some um, artists from the U of A. There's some artists of all different ages. 
um, and different backgrounds, different mediums. Like some people um, are painting, some people are using sculptures. So, and then there's going to be a collection from uh, the University of Arkansas in Little Rock that's over a hundred years old. Some costumes mm. from um, their theater department. So you'll get to experience a little bit of history with art as well. All right. So it launches the first. Yes, that is the kickoff date. And then, you know, we have Northwest Arkansas Fashion Week, June 8th through the 10th. And that is going to be at the Momentary. We're really excited about that. Have you been there? Have you been to the Momentary lately? They have a really cool art exhibition there. It's kind of like you're underwater. You're going through all these little... These little caves is what I call them. But, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Will you be able to take advantage of that with um, Fashion Week? Yes, yes. And I won't be backstage this time. I'll actually be in front with people. So I'm (laughs) because, you know, running backstage with the models and stuff is is a lot going on. Uh, So it's fun, but I like to actually see people this time. So I'm going to be excited about that. Hopefully the fire alarm won't go. Oh, my gosh. So you were in on that. You were in well. On I wasn't that. in on pulling the fire alarm. You did it. No. Well, okay. So you bring that up. Was that two years ago? Was it? I don't no. Know. It was March of last year. March of twenty-two. Yes. Sunshine Broder and I were the hosts that night. Yes. I remember you mentioned going backstage. I remember going backstage mm-hmm. at this fashion show. And you have all the designers and all the different models. It's nuts. It was <laughs> controlled chaos. Yes. I don't think people understand what's going back there because there are so many different conversations and Mm -hmm. someone's keeping the time Mm -hmm. and there's always someone who's having to say, shh. Yes. And then having to get people in line and uh, make sure the lineup is correct and like, hey, did you have hair and makeup? You still need hair. Okay. You still need makeup. And just the whole coordination of it all, it's not for the week, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) For sure. But we're happy to do it uh, every single year. And we've partnered with some really amazing people like uh, Walmart Beauty, the Tyson Family Foundation. We're grateful to them. Um, All this probably wouldn't be possible without them. So we really appreciate that. So uh, what do we have to do to participate both in Assembly or Fashion Week? Yes, you got to go to Interform.art. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, these Fashion Week tickets, they go fast. So if if you are listening, make sure you get them as soon as possible because don't, don't send me an email asking for a hookup. <laughs> Kyle can't get you a hookup. Roe can't get you a hookup. Style Kyle can't <laughs> give you any hookups. Um, but no. yes, go to Interform.art and make sure you get tickets. Um, and... When you go to the website, it'll also tell you all the venues that all the art exhibitions are happening for assembly. So, And much of assembly, correct me if I'm wrong, much of assembly is free of charge? Yes. Yes, you can go to the venues. It's a great thing to do. Um, some of the art exhibitions are for adults, so you, we should preface that. But if you're looking for something to do, like a really interesting date night, and you just want to get out, I think um, taking your date to an art exhibition is pretty classy. <laughs> I mean, I would like it. If a guy took me to our, listen, there might be a second date. There might be. <laughs> You've heard it here first. Oh, also, there's going to be a Juneteenth celebration. That's going to be in downtown Springdale. Got some amazing artists coming, like Young Jock. And I don't know if y'all are old enough to remember Bone Thugs and Harmony, but they're going to be there. And some uh, really great singers and gospel singers are going to be there. It's going to be fun for the whole family. And um, the Pride Parade. We are a part of that as well. So June is jam-packed. Style Kyle, listen. <laughs> you got to make sure you keep up. Where will Bone Thugs and Harmony be? 
downtown Springdale for the Juneteenth uh, event. It's going to be a stage. It's going to be right there on Emma. Like the stage is going to be wow. right. You know how it was last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a big stage. There's going to be a fashion show from Katsu Mamalu. She was actually in, um, what is it? Designing All Stars. Yes. What is it? What's that called? The I show? know. Yes. And yes. she's going back. She's going back she's as going part of the All-Star. She's going back as the All-Star yeah. thing. And she's going to be showcasing her collection. That's going to be phenomenal. She's an amazing um, designer. So plenty of stuff to ju- do in June in Northwest Arkansas. So if you're going, you're doing a staycation, there's plenty of things for you to do right here. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Style Kyle. You look good. Got your little tie on. Don't play. That's <laughs> Ro Bailey is the communications manager with Interform, presenters of the multifaceted assembly that begins next month in Northwest Arkansas. You can learn more about assembly, NWA Fashion Week, and Interform at interform.art. And we'll be learning much more about the Juneteenth observation later this week when we talk with Anthony Ball about what we can expect at this year's festival. This is Ozarks at Large. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Sonora. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Jacqueline Froelich, Anna Pope, and Randy Wilburn. Today's show was produced in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. KUAF's membership director is Brett Ratliff. And if you are interested in supporting KUAF or continuing your support of KUAF, we've made it incredibly easy, safe, and secure. You can just go to supportkuaf.com. I'm guessing that all of your membership questions can be answered there. You can also become a sustaining member of KUAF, contributing a certain amount every month. All there at supportkuaf.com. We'll be here tomorrow at noon and 7 with another brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Please be well. Have a great rest of your Tuesday.